This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Minal Srivatsava, who is professor um, of, in the Department of Political Economy and Global Studies at Athabasca University. We'll be speaking about a fascinating uh, book today, Amma's Daughters, a Memoir, uh, Athaba- Athabasca University Press 2018. Minal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Balkaran. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, please, please. I'm, I'm, I'm Raj. Uh, some students call me Dr. Raj or Dr. Balkaran. I see in print. So please, Raj is fine. <laughs> okay, uh, Raj. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, so a couple of things. A couple of things. Let's 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 get this piece out, out of the way because I think it's fascinating. Athabasca University. That's a unique university, isn't it? Yes, it is indeed. Uh, So we are Canada's open university, and we have existed for more than 50 years. Um, So Athabasca University uh, is kind of modeled on the the British uh, or the UK open university pattern. Uh, In in the old days, everything was correspondence courses and so on. But uh, in keeping with times, uh, all of our courses and programs are now online. Uh, but we have um, what I'm really proud, proud about in terms of working for Athabasca University is its open mandate. So it is about accessibility for students who are traditionally uh, not able to access higher education. So, uh, you know, uh, to, to get into any of the courses at Athabasca University, for instance, there are no prerequisites. Uh, but the courses that students end up doing are of really high quality, cutting edge, uh, you know, leading uh, uh kind of research oriented um, or rather based on on the faculty research profile, these courses are designed. Um, So we have this very uh, interesting setup of really high quality education, but access uh, and openness being the most important mandate that kind of uh, is the the thread that joins us all together. So I I would invite you to look at, uh, to your listeners as well, to look at the website of Athabasca University and see for yourself. You can do uh, standalone courses or programs with Athabasca University from the pleasure of your and comfort of your homes, wherever you are. Yeah, I'll certainly include the university link in the podcast notes so folks can check it out. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I had I had intended to take a deeper dive into the institution, not by virtue of, uh, not as a function of the podcast prep. I know enough with the book and and yourself, but um, what intrigued me is I was fairly certain in that it was an online university. It was a remote university. And and this is fascinating to me because um, most of my teaching 
since 2010, since even before I started the PhD, was continuing studies, lifelong mm-hmm. learners, interested learners. And since 2020, that's exclusively been online since 2017, but yes. um, especially since 2020, it's all been online. So online continuing studies is, is where I live. It's, it's, yes. it's a fascinating space. And so yes. um, it, could you say a little bit, perhaps if you would indulge me, say a bit about maybe trends you've noticed either at the Academy online learning since the pandemic, you know, what are you noticing from your perspective? Um, it is a very interesting times, both for higher education generally, but also for online education. I kind of am always a little res- hesitant to refer to Athabasca University as an online university, uh, because that's a, a, a very interesting area and, and pretty profit motivated. Uh, but Athabasca University is actually a public university. And online is just uh, a tool for Athabasca University. The the mainstay of of Athabasca University is like any uh, research-oriented, we are a comprehensive research-oriented university. So our faculty do teaching and research and service and all of that. And that is what feeds our courses and programs. Uh, And like I was mentioning, the open mandate is really important to to Athabasca University, its faculty, but also to, to our students. So in terms of trends, I would say that We've always had, uh, you know, almost 80 to 90 percent of our students working uh, full time or part time. Um, And um, also, interestingly, and again, that trend is probably in keeping with uh, other institutions as well, not just the ones that are open and online, that more women are taking courses compared to men uh, at the tertiary level. Uh, and those trends have only uh, have been quite consistent through the pandemic years as well. Uh, so we definitely saw um, a, a quite a significant increase in student enrollment at the beginning of the pandemic, which has kind of plateaued in the last little while because uh, you know suddenly in the early days of the pandemic everybody was going online, whatever that means. Uh, but uh, I think uh, what I realized talking to a number of my colleagues at other institutions uh, that just by taking your lectures onto Zoom uh, or, or putting your notes online is not equal to online learning, online pedagogy. So that is where I think Athabasca University really excels. And that is where I feel the trend is also going in terms of now increasingly uh, traditional brick and mortar universities also looking at having recognized that this is a strength, having recognized that this is actually uh, a great, there is a great demand from students to to have this kind of flexibility in terms of their geographic location. Um, I I am seeing that there is definitely a trend uh, across the board in increasing online offerings. So, um, yeah, so in terms of Athabasca University, I feel that there is definitely a a greater recognition uh, or or rather credibility of Athabasca University. It is something as an academic I have noticed uh, I started my career in a brick and mortar university. And when I, uh, 17 years ago, when I joined Athabasca University, one of the things I did notice was, um, you know, people kind of would question things like, oh, is that a real university if it's online and, and that kind of stuff? And that has waned in the last little while uh, because people have, uh, I, I think, uh, my academic colleagues in particular uh, are seeing the value of um, 
online pedagogy and online learning uh, in because of, of what we are seeing right now uh, in the world around us. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah, the questions are always meant to be generative, uh, <laughs> uh, but it does. Yeah, it's, it's a conversation. And I'm just particularly fascinated in this piece because it's so uh, it's so relevant to my own um, um, academic, uh, you know, vocational path and a couple of the things that really jump out at me is one you know um uploading videos of one lecturing uh, yeah. is does not an online course make i mean that might make a great youtube <laughs> series yes. exactly and so 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 one of the things that you know initially i was very skeptical personally about online education but it mm -hmm. sort of called to me for reasons that i can't quite figure out well in 2020 i realized i had been preparing for the pandemic for three years but um <laughs> it, it being a very old-fashioned sort of you know face-to-face parampara handshake you know a personal connection sort of guy yeah. and then being skeptical about the extent to which that could be translated to the online world it actually uh, invited me to to um, pioneer for myself ways in which one could do that. And mm -hmm. uh, I currently run an online school, which I founded. And part of that is because part of its success is because of a pedagogy that is um, catered to and appropriate for and effective in via the online medium. Mm -hmm. And in my person, I can't speak for anyone more than myself, but my personal experience, um, I was fairly sheepish saying to colleagues I defended my PhD in 2015 I was a little sheepish saying oh, I do this this um, you know I have these these courses on the side that I do or online courses that I do and and really post 2020 it was like hey Raj uh, you know how do I how do I take this online what are some strategies tools techniques so without question folks understand that the online sphere is not just uh the gutter or the bargain bin it's this wild west it's this it's this um it's a space in which you have the fine dining and you have the greasy spoons you've got the fast food you have everything in between mm -hmm. and folks who uh, for a variety of reasons are with it realize hey well people need to be fed in this online world mm -hmm. and if i'm one of the ones called to do that or if universities are called to innovate and interestingly enough i do session contracts every once in a while so i can corrupt the youth you know at the at a university or <laughs> I just finished one at Lethbridge University and they wanted mm -hmm. someone to teach credited courses online yes. and it's across it's two time zones away from where I live right. um and I suspect that you know you know they wanted a solid scholar uh, the, 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 it was to replace Hillary Rodriguez for a year and he's he's a great scholar a great teacher uh, a great figure mm -hmm. but I really suspect uh why they were quite happy uh, with the choice that they made is because um, I have experience teaching yes. online and translating Absolutely. this online. Yeah, yeah. It, it is definitely a, a different pedagogy, but also um, distance education is not new. So distance education has existed for a very long time and quite successfully so, right? I mean, in India, uh, I'm sure you're aware of the Indira Gandhi National Open University uh, and uh, South Africa, which is my second home uh, before Canada. Um, uh, we have UNISA, which is the University of South Africa, which is again, an open and distance university. And these universities have, they are both public universities, much like Athabasca University, and they serve uh, a very underserved population. 
So distance education has a very long pedigree and online learning is uh, adapting from that. So I think this is where uh, people are beginning to realize um, you know, that, that this pedagogy has existed. The online as a tool is what's new. But distance pedagogy has uh, has been evolving for some time now, so I think it is time for us to uh, to, to to kind of um, maybe be a little bit more adventurous uh, because not, I don't believe we have an option anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, given the the political economy of the world, given the the world we live in, in terms of you know economic crisis, climate crisis, mass immigration crisis. There's, there's no dearth of crisis right now. So we do have to think of more innovative ways, more flexible ways to reach out to populations that continue to be underserved. And yet while, as of course you're well aware, and as, as of course you do in your own pedagogy, while ensuring a particular level of rigor, of impact, of, of, of knowledge transmission, of, of it's whatever the transformation is for that particular course. Yes. And, and one can do that and do it online. And in some ways, even reach people more deeply because it's on their schedule or it's in a particular setting. Um, mm-hmm enough about uh, <laughs> online education. I mean, I mean, I could probably talk to you for an hour about that. It just happens to be a passion and interest. And in... maybe we have to have another session for that. Yeah, yeah. Frankly, it's just, it seems to be where I live. Online Hindu studies, continuing studies. Uh, Amma's Daughters, a memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, this book is unique in a number of ways. Tell us a bit about the vision of the book and if you care to, the genesis of this book. Sure. Um, so... When I started, I had no vision about this book. It was really, it started as, as a personal project, uh, a rather emotional project. Um, soon after uh, the demise of my mother, um, and it was actually a project uh, that she had talked about most of my life. Uh, so in 2010, when my mother passed away after a six-year-old uh, battle with uh, cancer, um, I, after a you know suitable length of grieving, um, I'm laughing now, but uh, it, it was a very difficult time for me of grieving uh, the the death of my my mother, but also feeling like an orphan because my father had already passed on, and also I was living uh, in Canada, so I was like I, I almost felt homeless, you know, having lost my parents and uh, and not living in in a place. Uh, you know, where, uh, where I was still kind of building community and building a life. And my husband was living in South Africa at the time. So it was a very in- intense emotional period for me when my mother passed away. So it, this, is, uh, this was one of, you know, kind of the healing journey that I undertook uh, about a year after my mother had passed away. Uh, and it was also connected to a physical healing journey because I had uh, I had to go for spinal surgery around the same time soon after my mother's passing. So it was this, uh, you know, like uh, these layers of intensity and layers of trauma that I was dealing with. Um, the only way out of me for, for uh, at the time was to actually be very, um, to be, to embark on some sort of a conscious healing journey. And this was part of what I was trying to do at the time. So I just started writing, uh, you know, I, I 
like I mentioned, my mother had always mentioned this long-term project of hers. She was a prolific writer. She was a professor of uh, Indian classical music, Hindustani classical music uh, at Rajasthan University. And she had written eight books and she had written thousands of classical bandishay, khayal, etc. But uh, this was one book she always talked about, but never put even a word on paper about it. And it was, she used to call it Jaisa Mene Sunaur Dekha, which translates to what I heard and saw. And what she wanted to do was uh, write a book about her, her mother and father who were freedom fighters and uh, her perception of their life's journey. So as part of my healing journey, I went back to that project and I said, okay, what do I remember? What have I heard and, and seen? So I started to, to work on this, you know, writing from this very personal perspective. And then I uh, was very fortunate to chance upon my grandmother's um, published autobiography and unpublished personal diary. And reading those two things was, uh, uh, in the light of what I know now, because I, I had read uh, both of those when I was much younger, and it was no more than a personal diary, uh, you know, or personal account for me. But now, after uh, you know, having gained some insights into how history works and engaging with critical questions of both history and political economy, I was suddenly um, quite aware of the enormity of what was in my hands as a historical, as historical material. So, and that realization then led me to treat it uh, not just as an emotional project, but it transformed into an intellectual pursuit. So, uh, I, you know, I, I spent seven years working on this book. And after the initial, uh, you know, just the, the writing bit that I was doing in terms of sketching out the details, I undertook archival research. And I also interviewed whoever I could uh, manage to connect with who had known my grandparents or my, my mother and her sister in any capacity. So I used kind of... Uh, archival and, and uh, uh, interview as methods to authenticate what I had found in those um, uh, published and unpublished sources, but also in terms of what I had inherited as oral family history, the stories I had heard about my uh, grandparents. So combining all of those, uh, I wrote a few academic articles about archival research and about uh, the role of women in um, India's independence movement. Uh, but most importantly, what came out of that, uh, those years of uh, you know, researching and writing was this book, Amma's Daughters. So that is kind of uh, in a nutshell, but not quite <laughs> a small nutshell, uh, how, how this started and how it ended, I guess. <laughs> Uh, and also, it was very important for me that this book uh, was published by Athabasca University Press, because it is an open access press. So uh, the electronic version of this book is a free downloadable version. Uh, but yes, uh, you can buy a print copy, uh, uh, which is not free, obviously. Uh, but um, to me, that was another important aspect of, of publishing this book. Um, so yeah, all of those things are kind of a variety of strands that went into making this book. Um, but yeah, 
um, I'm, I'm so happy to be talking about this. Yeah, the, the um, open access um, link will also be supplied in the podcast notes mm-hmm. along with the, the link whereby folks should could purchase a, a, a print copy if they're interested. Um, so um, two questions come to mind. Which one should I ask first? Okay. Um, what was that process like for you? The process, the, the sort of the methodology, if you will, the process whereby you were commingling personal memory, uh, memoirs of a beloved, family memories, um, 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 historical methods, uh, the tenets of academic inquiry. You know, what was that process like for you? Yeah, this, this, um, it was actually a very difficult process, I must admit, (laughs) Um, because it was not just an academic project, it became an academic project, but because it started as a personal project, it added layers to the process that I was not familiar with. Um, I had spent a lifetime learning to write, uh, you know, in uh, kind of neutral or supposedly neutral way of an academic, you know, dispassionate, uh, you know. Uh, the, the, the mythical objective on Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I had spent a, a lifetime developing how to write that and, and how to think like that. And here I was suddenly uh, writing on something that I could not be distant from. It was, you know, it was part of who I am. So it was a very difficult um it, there was a lot of learning and unlearning involved when I embarked on this process. Uh, and I had no idea what I was doing uh, at the, well, I probably still am at a loss to uh, put this into any one category um, because yes, it's it's a nonfiction, it's historical, it's narrative, it's first person, but then I'm not that first person. It's in my mother's voice because it was very important for me that this remained my mother's story. Um, So it's in her voice, uh, but it is a first person narrative. Um, It is uh, nonfiction, but there are elements in there which were, uh, for instance, there is one character in there, Kamala Masi, um, who is... um, who is an amalgam of a few people I knew uh, and uh, about whom I could find, get more information, but it is not a real person. So there are those kind of elements in there. So, um, you know, in terms of the literary genre, um, it's very hard for me to pigeonhole it into any classification, any one classification. And at the same time, it's also on the cusp of an academic and personal project. So there are all these ways in which I found that, you know, I'm, I'm probably too much wedded to structure. And this was not fitting any structure that I, <laughs> that I knew well enough. Um, so, so to me, that was one of the very hard things that I had to navigate that, you know, how do I, what do I, call it. Uh, but it, it wasn't something that I was thinking of when I was working on it. it w- these were questions of, um, you know, when the publication process started, this is when I was asking those questions and, and falling short in terms of answering uh, those questions by myself. But um, the Athabasca University um, editorial team was just fantastic. And they really helped me think through some of those things. And um, 
I'm really grateful for uh, how they approached it in a very open-minded way uh, and weren't really concerned that it doesn't fit into one specific criteria or classification. So that was really great. But uh, going back to the issue of process, uh, like I was mentioning earlier, um, it kind of started as uh, almost like a narrative outpouring of what I knew, what I remembered, and, uh, you know, an avalanche of memories that sometimes I wasn't even sure, you know, sometimes I knew they were not my own. Um, and so, you know, what is this happening? So there were all those kind of issues that uh, were very interesting for me, and especially now when I look back. But at the time, they were uh, quite disorienting that, you know, this is what a writing process looks like. This is what a creative writing process feels like. I, I had no idea. So there were all of those kind of very interesting aspects of the process um, that I have now, I've come to cherish, but at the time they scared me. <laughs> um, and then of course there's the, in terms of the process, the most comfortable uh, I was in the process was with the historical research part, because that is something I understand and I can work with. And, uh, and that's where I felt on kind of solid ground that, oh, okay, now I know what I'm doing. Uh, so, and, and then the other big piece in terms of the process is the publication process itself. Uh, which was another, uh, uh, I mean, this this wasn't my first book. I had uh, co-edited uh, another book a little while before that. Uh, and I was working with uh, pretty much the same team uh, at Athabasca University Press. So that was very helpful to, to have gone through that and to, uh, to kind of expect, know what to expect. So... So yeah, so there were there are all these pieces to writing a book, and I suppose everybody has their own share of you know scary moments and uh, uncertainties and disorientation, and I think I had my fair share of all of those. Yeah, I, I mean, anyone who's written a book or has a vivid imagination <laughs> understands, <laughs> or both, in certain yes. cases of some books, um, <laughs> they understand that books are birthings. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's labor in all senses, mm -hmm. and that there are those in your field, be they uh, interlocutors at home or armchair advisors or actual advisors, and certainly your editorial team, mm -hmm. where the best, the best such professionals are but midwives, mm -hmm. where they accept that the baby will come the way the baby will come, yes. but there are particular, um, there are particular safeguards in place to yes. receive it in a healthy manner and name it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay, enough uh, analogies for one day, uh, for now. <laughs> um, um, how is the book structured? Speaking of which, how did you end up structuring the book? Um, it was quite organic because I essentially, um, and again, this was mainly because I like structure. <laughs> um, I kept it very chronological uh, because what wait, I- Wait, wait, an academic who likes structure? <laughs> I, I, I know not what you mean. <laughs> I number my interviews just because, <laughs> so I go on. <laughs> Excuse me. No, exactly, right? I mean, I, I think this is again, uh, one of the ways you kind of learn as an academic, um, how, how to manage, you know, this incredible amount of data or, or literature that uh, that you encounter and you have to process. So uh, 
I, I think that's what teaches uh, academics uh, to, to respect, if not love, structure. Um, but in my case, maybe uh, it's it's maybe combined with my personality as well, which is I must I'm unfortunately a little bit embarrassed to admit that yes, structure gives me a sense of uh, security, I guess. So so in keeping with that, uh, there was no other way for me to write this book, uh, at least this one. Uh, other than keeping it chronological. And there was another reason why that actually worked because what I inherited in terms of uh, the autobiography and my grandmother's diary, there was no structure. There was no chronological thread that was kept consistent because uh, essentially how my grandmother wrote her diaries was, was a very interesting process. This was a young woman on the move all the time, but she was also very committed to writing a daily journal and she used to write very thoughtful, long journals. But uh, because she was constantly moving, um, she had all these notebooks. And she would pick up the one that was closest to her and start writing. But what that meant was that sometimes the, the only surviving diary that we have of hers. So the first entry is from 1923. And then it, um, I'm sorry, it's 1926. Uh, and then the next entry may be 1930. Another one will be, the, the one after that will be, uh, you know, consecutive for a little while. And then it would uh, be somewhere 1960. And then again, 1940, because she was picking up these books and would start writing, not even necessarily at, you know, the, the, the next page, but wherever the book opens, she would start writing. This was a woman who was in a big hurry and had a lot of responsibility. So... That's what I inherited. So there was like this jumble of materials that I had in her personal diary. And she, her published autobiography is pretty much the same. <laughs> uh, there again, you know, one story doesn't necessarily follow the other story in any kind of chronological order. So this was one of the ways in which I was trying to untangle this jumble of of events and dates and names and places uh, that I had that I had in front of me. So the structure of the book <laughs> is consequently totally chronological. <laughs> um, yeah, I chuckled to myself. Thank goodness I mute for most of these uh, podcasts. I chuckled <laughs> to myself because uh, two things come to mind. One, one is. Um, 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 my goodness, you must be able to relate to someone who studies the Puranas, <laughs> where there's a tale here, a tale there, a dynasty here, a teaching there, Shastric stuff here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And there's this, this patchwork. And, and then it's, 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 it's my job as the, the scholar or the mythologist or the incarnate yeah. Puranica or whatever, however you want to view my job, to, yeah. um, to make sense. Because there is great meaning and sense in there. Yes. Although prima facie may not appear so. Yes. Well, without question, there's profound meaning within, 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 within the folds of, of the corpus, without question. Mm -hmm. um, the, the other thing that comes to mind um, as you were speaking is that one of the things I love about the, uh, the, the writing style you describe is that 
the person is not writing for posterity. The person is not writing for the audience. This is not performance. She's relishing the experience of writing as a means of making sense of her life. And it's something as if this is a vitamin that I'm going to be stronger if I get in today, wherever I can down the, the vitamins here, whatever it is. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, obviously you'd have a better sense, but this indicates me somebody who's writing for themselves and mm-hmm. their process, which yes. while makes it less organized, probably makes it more rich. You're absolutely right. I, I think uh, she was certainly writing for herself. Uh, that is my grandmother. But at the same time, I feel somewhere deep down, she did have a sense of history of the times she was living in. So partly, um, she was also chronicling something that she understood was historical times. Um, I, I don't think she was very aware of her own role in that broader history, but she certainly was aware of it being a, a, a kind of a turning point, a historical turning point. And I'd like to believe that to an extent she was writing so that her story would be known. So yes, she wasn't writing for an audience, but she was writing because she wanted these stories to be known. And they are momentous stories. Uh, you know, For someone who, who passed away when she was only 54 years old, her, uh, her life was so eventful and there were so many significant events that were connected to the larger historical movement. Um, she does not, her, her writing doesn't betray that she understood her own place in in those momentous events. But at the same time, there is that recognition that something really momentous was happening. Uh, But also as a woman in those times, she she could see that she was breaking new paths. And I think that is why she wanted those stories. She, She understood the significance of those stories for the next generation. So she actually kept these diaries hidden. She didn't like her daughters reading these diaries. Um, you know, it was always a, a thing of my my mother used to tell us that uh, she would read these diaries um, secretly because uh, her her mother didn't like that the daughter should read it now. But she was keeping all of them because if she didn't want those stories to be read, she had many opportunities to destroy those diaries. But she didn't. She kept them all. But she. So yeah, so there, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag in some ways. It's a it's a mixture of of a variety of things that were going on there, um, but also it was a very interesting uh, time of upheaval, uh, you know, in the country, but also in uh, for a person for the individual uh, individuals who were part of these stories. So yeah, you're you're right, but but it just makes it you know not uh, that lack of clarity about. Um, about that, their place in history, um, on one hand, um, makes for these kind of, uh, you know, non-chronological and, and, and pieces that are spread everywhere. But at the same time, like you mentioned, that's what makes it really rich, because it's coming not with an intention of, of telling a story a certain way, but it's just put out there for anyone to read and interpret it in their own way. She's, um, she's, she's, she's channeling experience through the written word. She's, mm-hmm. she's, she's channeling, she's, she's a weaving fabric and however yes. they've tailored beyond her time is, is up to posterity, but she's just generating fabric. Yes. Right? Um, yes that's a good analogy. I like that. 
what was the times in which she lived and, and, and what do you mean when you say she didn't realize her participation or her impact on those times? Say more about that. And otherwise put, you could even tell us, you know, what's the book about? <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe, uh, yeah, I can probably answer both of them at the same time. Uh, so the book is about um, a 12 year old girl who was imprisoned for treason and sedition in 1930. Uh, and uh, she joined, uh, so she came from a very privileged family, uh, but because of her personal trauma, she joined the Indian national movement at a very young age. And like I mentioned, at 12 years of age, she was imprisoned and she was in and out of jail uh, for three times before she turned 16 years of age. So she wrote detailed accounts of her prison sentencing, uh, how it happened and her experiences of being in prison, the violence she endured. Um, and she, um, uh, in her autobiography, it's mostly about her involvement in the freedom movement. Uh, and the, her autobiography came out in 1962. So of course it was after independence. So there she's, uh, she's kind of reading it from the or writing it from the perspective of what has happened and of course she understands her her place in history but she was never the central figure in any of her stories except the stories of her being in jail where she's talking about personal her personal experience but in most of her stories she's talking about uh you know the broader uh picture, so the bigger picture of, of these massive protest marches that were happening and, and the violence that was committed by the state uh, through the use of police and, and militia uh, on, on these unarmed protesters. So she's talking about those things, but there she is. She's a, she's, she's a very young woman in the 1930s. She is a direct witness of all of that. So she does mention where she is and what's happening to her. But like I said, she never puts herself in the middle of it. She's not the focus of any of those stories. So that was the one part of her story that came from her autobiography. And then she also spoke about her experience of um, being one of the first uh, women bureaucrats in independent India. Uh, she was a, an, a deputy director of a, the social welfare department in, uh, in UP at, at the time, I think it was United Province. Um, and uh, so she, she spoke about her, or she wrote about her experience of uh, doing that uh, by being virtually a single parent um, and, uh, and and how that looked from her perspective. But again, without any commentary, there was no analysis of why this is happening to her or, you know, or, or, or even any uh, complaint about why this is happening to her. But it was mostly in terms of, okay, this is what I went through. This is how I managed. And these were the people who helped me. And, uh, and these were my experiences, some of which were really incredible experiences, like uh, including one where she was escorted by decoits across a, a ravine and so on. So like incredible stories, but she's, she tells them really very nonchalantly, you know, for her, it was just, this is how I live my life. <laughs> so th that's what I mean when I say that, you know, she, she doesn't display any sense of her, um, her place in, in history in, in some ways. Uh, but going back to the book, what the book is about, yes, it has all of those stories about this young woman uh, who then, uh, after serving three jail terms, uh, she was when she was about 16 years old uh, after her second third jail term she was not too old 
to be out in the world unmarried and without the protection of her family name because she chose not to use her surname. She chose not to go back home. So here is this single woman in 1936 who is uh, uh, still part of the freedom movement and now facing opposition from the freedom movement because they were her own comrades who were questioning her credibility. They were questioning her character. And uh, you know there was this pushback that the single woman uh, an attached single woman was something to be tamed or some uh, was fair game. And so there were all those other uh, obstacles that suddenly arose in her way after she got out of jail. So prison wasn't hard enough. Now she had this whole new set of uh, you know, problems that she had to encounter. And so those were the things I got from her diaries more than her autobiography. Uh, and of course, my mother's stories, my, my mother and my aunt uh, had, uh, were custodians of many of those stories. So uh, the story is told from my mother's perspective, because like I said, it is in her voice because it honors her, but it's also in, uh, it's my, my way of acknowledging the fact that almost all of those stories I had heard from my mother before they were committed to paper. But between that and uh, between hearing those stories and, and writing them, there was this long um, series of authentication that happened either through interviews, through archival research and so on. So uh, in this book, the story unfolds uh, through the eyes of a very young Sureka, that's my mother, and how she gradually learns about this very interesting past of her mysterious and very unconventional parents, uh, because both her parents were freedom fighters. But uh, in this book, Amma's Daughters, uh, Amma is the central character. I had to actually quite consciously keep uh, my grandfather out of it because he was larger than life. He, he was in every way possible. He was a former bodybuilder. Uh, he was a, a close associate of Subhash Chandra Bose. He spoke, um, so many different languages. Uh, he spoke Bangla, Marathi, uh, Odia, um, Hindi, of course, Hindi, English, Sanskrit, etc. He was a polyglot, but he also spoke French and German, and I don't know what else. So we had this library full of books in so many languages because of my grandfather. And he was this very, he had a bombastic voice and he was, a, he was an amazing singer. So you had this, and, and I knew him. This was the other thing because I was only, you know, I was a baby when my grandmother passed away. So I never, I don't remember my grandmother. I, I, I lived in her shadow because her stories were always around me. But uh, my grandfather lived to be uh, more than 90 years old. He only passed away in 1990. So, you know, I remember him really vividly. So for me, um, my grandfather was a lot more real than my grandmother in some ways. So I had to really work on it. Uh, and also the part of, um, uh, you know, because the book kind of stops at the, um, at the death of my grandmother. So I, it couldn't be about how I saw my grandfather. It had to be about how, how he was as a father and a husband and not as a grandfather, because as a grandfather, he was this incredibly doting, wonderfully loving uh, uh, 
a grandfather who also taught us a lot of things. He introduced us to all kinds of uh, you know stories from the Vedas and Puranas and taught us mantras. And, and he was this incredibly loving grandfather. But as a father, he was an absentee father. He was hardly there um, for, for my mother or her sister. And as a husband, he was um, borderline cruel. So, you know, I had to really work on, on uh, accommodating those various perspectives or facets of this one person. Um, so, yes, I mean, I'm, I, I think you asked me to tell you what the book is in a, in a nutshell, but I, obviously I'm using really large <laughs> nutshells to, uh, to, to give you these answers, but uh, I, yeah, I mean, basically this book is, uh, a, you know, in a nutshell, if I were to try to, to, to tell you in a nutshell, uh, it can be seen as a story of two women who grew up in the shadow of these two very unconventional uh, former freedom fighters of, uh, in the war of independent or rather Indian independence movement. Uh, but it's also the story of uh, the important role that women have played in historical movements and moments. And that we continue to, even in the 21st century, they continue to be invisible to us. Yeah, there there are no there there are no nutshells and <laughs> responses, and <laughs> my, my questions are purposefully uh, uh, provocative in the sense of provoking dialogue, expansion, mm -hmm. reflection. Um, this is this is what I see to be my dharma, both as a podcast host and at times as an online teacher. But that's a story for another day. Um, <laughs> so, do you maybe want to share a little snippet of the book for us? Sure. Um, to I give have, folks uh, the flavor of the text. I would love to do that. So there is this, um, it's uh, right in the beginning of the book. Um, well, it's, uh, what is this? Chapter three. So not quite the beginning. Uh, but um, at, in this uh, passage, um, Amma is opening up to her daughters for the first time and describing in her own words um, what it was like uh, to participate in the civil disobedience movement. And uh, most of this passage uh, is, I've used, uh, of course, her both her autobiography and her personal diary to fill in the details in this passage. <clears throat> so this starts from page 98. Amma described the phenomenon of women quoting arrest in large numbers in response to Gandhiji's call for mass civil disobedience in 1930. Hundreds of thousands of women stepped out of their homes, defying their families and ancient customs, as well as British law. Women joined picket lines, protest rallies, and Prabhat Ferry marches at daybreak through the streets of cities and towns, singing spiritual songs, infused with nationalist fervor. Veiled women made salt on their terraces and in their courtyards, literally shouting from rooftops that they had broken the law. This dramatic influx of women into the civil disobedience movement posed a logistical problem for the British, whose prisons were not equipped to take in so many women detainees. Hoping to cut to the heart of the problem, the British sent undercover informants into public meetings to identify women 
who appeared to be ringleaders. Young Shanti's every step was shadowed by the police and her rousing public speeches were duly noted. After she was arrested early in the fall of 1930, she was sentenced to six months in prison. With a wry smile, Amma recalled how the magistrate who sentenced her seemed reluctant to do so. She was barely more than a child. She also fondly remembered the affection showed to her as the youngest inmate by the other political prisoners, as well as the stream of visitors who came to bless her and be blessed by her. This flow of visitors had not ebbed when the British authorities decided to transfer Amma from Ajmer to the Lucknow jail. She was touched by the generosity of, she was also touched by the generosity of Kamla Nehru here. The prison guards were noticeably lenient towards the handful of women prisoners who had family connections. And Nehruji's wife had been permitted to arrange for the delivery of home cooked hot meals. These she insisted on sharing with Shanti, moved by the girl's young age and her lack of family. Most importantly, Shanti witnessed the courage of the many women prisoners who participated in daily meetings and every morning and evening joined their voices for an hour in the singing of nationalist songs. The vast majority of these prisoners had no privileged status. They were often from ordinary middle-class families, women with little by way of education who had been arrested for doing what they believed to be right. Many of them, especially those who had small children, were worried about their future after prison. To turn those fears to their advantage, the British authorities offered a pardon to any woman who would apologize for participating in seditious activities and swear an oath to never do so again. Yet, despite the tempting prospect of official forgiveness and a swift release, Amma could not recall a single woman who accepted this offer. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that vignette. Um, Thank you. Let's see, you know, we're coming fairly close to time today. Um, what I want to ask, well, let me ask you this before I ask a couple of my last questions. Was there anything about the book that you hoped we touch on today? Is there anything in particular that you wanted us to touch on? Um, I, I think, I, I, I love the questions you asked and I think they, they got me really talking. Um, and I sometimes do lose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were in the flow. Okay, great. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so it's let me just say if there's anything that's sure, missing. Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, well, that means there was nothing top of mind. There was no particular agenda coming in. So I understand. No. So yeah. let me ask you this. Who might most benefit from this book? Whether in terms of interests, uh, subfields, etc, etc, etc. Who might that's, this book most be for? Thank you. That's that's another great question, I would say. Uh, and I think how I look at this book is, um, it's yes, it's based out of India. Yes, the context is the Indian national movement. But a lot of the issues that uh, are raised in the book are still very relevant. Um, 
it, you know, I mean, yes, you can say that this all happened almost 100 years ago, but we seem to be fighting, especially as women anywhere in the world, not just Indian women, but women everywhere seem to be still fighting the same battles over and over again. So for me, that's the one thing that um, I would like to to say about this book, uh, reading this, uh, writing this book, um, gave me an appreciation because I've often heard, uh, you know, people talk about, especially, you know, um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, women's rights advocates and feminists would tell you that women are fighting the same battle every generation. But when I started working on this book, I realized how true it was. And it didn't matter what the context was. It didn't matter. Your geographical and cultural context did not matter. This is a, an ongoing battle. It's a necessary battle. But if we read and if we uh, learn from each other, then we are likely to uh, organize better. We are likely to understand these situations better. And hopefully we are likely to create more al alliances. So uh, in terms of who this book could speak to, I would say that anyone who's concerned about social justice, women or, or non-women, um, men, women, children, whoever. And, and it is, I believe, a, an important duty for all of us to be thinking in terms of you know, justice and inclusivity and sustainability. We are living in an era of climate crisis along with a lot of other crises that I mentioned earlier. So, um, I do think that it's not something that, you know, that should be a responsibility of thought leaders or intellectuals or uh, politicians or um, government officials. It, it should be something that we should all take ownership of, that we do need to work towards a more inclusive and just and fair and sustainable world. And if you are concerned with those things, then it really helps to broaden your horizon to see what has happened before and to see how people have resisted and survived and thrived despite all the odds. So I hope this book will speak to people who are concerned about justice and change and resilience. You don't have to be a woman to read this book and you definitely don't have to be just Indian to read this book. I can vouch for one of those. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> oh, an enjoyable read is an enjoyable read and um i mean there's so much that comes to mind reading this on the one hand you know the more things change the more they stay the same and mm -hmm. certain struggles are as, as vivid and palpable now as ever and yet yes. without question we've made um phenomenal progress in a short century Exactly. And yet at the same time, with the ebb and flow, sometimes the lows are so low, it feels yes. like we're back in chains or back yes. into being property or back, et cetera, et cetera, et yes. cetera. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and yet, but it also yeah. gives you hope in terms of, uh, and this is why I think it's important to read about uh, other people's lives to see how far we have come. Yes, we are fighting the same battles, but at the same time, we are not starting from zero we are standing on the shoulders of giants. So this is, exactly. this is another important reminder for us that you know, it's, it's not all hopeless, uh, but yes, we have gone through this process over and over again, but we can always start from strength. And that's where we are. We are in a position of strength. We just have to, 
to learn to, um, if, we, if we are aware of that foundation, then we can big, build a bigger building, a more inclusive building. But if we don't pay attention to what has happened before, um, then that is when we feel lost and hopeless. My final question for today is, why is the book called Amma's Daughters? Who are Amma's Daughters? And what's the relevance of that phrase? So the title uh, of the book came to me right in the beginning. Uh, when I started writing this, it was actually Amma's daughter because I was writing from my mother's perspective. And so the, the, the logical title that came to me was Amma's daughter. And then as I was writing more, I was like, oh, but Amma had two daughters. So, you know, I, I thought, yeah, yeah, it can't be daughter. It has to be daughters, uh, you know, because it was my, my Masi and my mother, uh, Amma's two daughters. Uh, but then as I started doing the archival research and, and discovered these erased women from Indian national movement's history, the daughters for me took on a totally different meaning. And it wasn't just Amma's daughters by blood, but also Amma's daughters who were connected by act and deed and location and time and space and all of that. So, you know, the, the daughters for me... Uh, doesn't just denote her family, but it denotes all of Amma's daughters who are everywhere in the world. Lovely. Um, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed talking to you. For those of you listening, we, of course, have been speaking with Dr. Meenal Srivastava uh, of uh, Athabasca University about her um, new Athabasca University Press publication, Amma's Daughters, a memoir. Um, until next time, keep these things, stay grounded, and um, keep contemplating the impact of powerful women in this world. Take care.